Welcome back everyone to season four of the Kelly Mental Health Podcast located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Throughout this season, CEO Linda Kelly will be chatting with people from many walks of life across the world about a variety of mental health and wellness topics. Please keep in mind that this is not a substitution for counseling. If you would like to talk to a licensed therapist, please visit us at www.kellymentalhealth.com. Megan is Ojibwe, a mother of two from Lac La Croix First Nation. She completed her psychology degree at Lakehead University and is currently completing her Honours Bachelor of Social Work. She is a public speaker, advocate and spiritual advisor. I think within a moment of meeting her, I could sense her intense passion for helping the people around her and her drive to make our community healthier starting right at home with herself and her wonderful children. She brings to the table the sort of power that is so needed in this day and age. She shares her story of breaking harmful cycles in her life and creating a better world for her children in order to motivate the people around her, particularly those seeking to repair the wounds of long-standing trauma resulting from the legacy of the Indian residential school system. In this episode, we talk about historical trauma, breaking abusive and harmful cycles in our lives, recognizing and taking responsibility, and so much more. My only regret about this episode is that we couldn't talk for hours longer, but hopefully we'll have her back soon. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Kelly Mental Health Podcast. My name is Linda Kelly. I'm the CEO of Kelly Mental Health Clinic in Thunder Bay, and I'm here with a special guest, Megan Jourdain. Did I say that right, Jourdain? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for uh, deciding to uh, spend some time with me on this uh, very still, I would say, warm Tuesday afternoon. It's not as hot as it's been, but at least yeah. it's not smoking. <laughs> yeah, the smoke is finally starting to lift, although I hear that most of Ontario is on fire right now. Um, we have a, a whole lot of stuff going on in um, in Canada lately. There's a lot of things in, in the news, a lot of people. Then there's also climate change issues coming up where we maybe didn't have as many forest fires last year. So there's even more this year. And so people are really, really on edge between you know all the things being reported in the media. And then there's day-to-day life, which as far as, uh, as far as you've told me is keeping you fairly busy, isn't it? Yes. It is. <laughs> yeah. So, so tell me about yourself. Well, allow me to introduce myself in my language first. So, Buju Nibibinesi, Kandishna Kaz, Gingwa Age Nindu Dem, Ojibwe Kwe Nindao. I, my spirit name is Water Thunderbird Woman. My government name is Megan Jordan. I represent the Wolverine clan and I'm an Ojibwe from Thunder Bay, Ontario. I have, I was born and raised here. I am a mother to a 13-year-old son and an eight-year-old daughter. I recently received my psychology psychology degree from Lakehead, and I am now doing a one-year condensed social work degree at the at, at, also at LU. Wow, that's that's so, an so, intense degree. <laughs> I should also mention I'm still doing um, public speaking and stuff on the side as well. Um, mm-hmm. I. I Kind of, I focus more on a motivational stance or informational, depending on what people request. Wow. And whereabouts do you do the public speaking? Well, actually, right now, most of it is on still on Zoom. I yeah. cannot be back in real rooms because there is a major difference between doing talks on Zoom versus in, in person, like the energy. I need the energy. So it's like, way, like Zoom right now, yes, it's, it's fine. My messages are still coming across, but like, I love that engagement. I love that, that feeling between people in a room. So it's, 
Um, I just, I just do it for, I'm mostly right now. I'm just helping people. I would say mostly in treatment facilities. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so tell me about some of the things that you speak about in terms of motivation with treatment facilities. Obviously there's probably dealing with, a um, that mostly like addictions, mental health, that kind of thing. Yes. Um, one of uh, the thing that I feel I, I specialize in what I really put a lot of my focus on, um, personally, and then also academically was, uh, intergenerational trauma. And I'm not talking just about just for indigenous people. I have found a way to formalize my speeches that make it applicable to anybody. So it's anybody can be born in cycles, right? We all know that you could be born into a family of addicts. You can be born into a family of of violence um and you can and what i teach is how to recognize how these patterns were created how they reflect in your life now and how do you break them so that's what i what i try to what i try to teach and what made me good at it at first was because i only i i've done it i've done it i have personally undertook breaking cycles in my own life and then i have now found a way to teach that to other people that's incredible. That's such, such important work. Um, intergenerational trauma, you're right, it is applicable to to anyone. Of course, it tends to be a, a bit more of a buzzword with certain populations, but yet that's true. And when I, when I was doing my uh, traumatology certifi- certification, they made us do um, a, what was it called? Uh, it was basically a family tree where you try to figure out where's all the trauma in each each uh, kind of sector and how did that affect then the children, the grandchildren, the the relationships. And it was incredible to actually see, you know, here's war and here's domestic violence and here's murder and here's the and, and how much it just echoes. Yeah, you know, like I actually funny you mentioned a family tree because I, I come from a very large Indigenous family. So on my mom's side, I have 12 aunts and uncles and on my dad's side, I have 13. So I literally have 25 aunts and uncles <laughs> had to do my family tree. Oh my God. <laughs> it just took me like, I think it literally took me like six or seven hours to complete. <sighs> yeah. It was not easy. <laughs> it's the worst when you start trying to write down the children's name too. And then you're like, okay, I got to move over these five people. Cause there's no room here. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That must've been such, such an experience to actually have to have it all all laid out like that yeah but it, it helped, you know I always tell people like if you're ever able to write it out or draw it out do it because then you can see it and then you actually see you can physically see problems and issues and then you can actually like try to figure out how to possibly work with them right mm-hmm. like I do find that a lot of people feel overwhelmed at the prospect uh, prospect of it because some people are quite aware of the trauma that you know has arisen within their family some people are aware that hey maybe this wasn't I mean I don't want to say normal because I think it's pretty normal I think it's pretty common um, but that it wasn't okay and so people feel very overwhelmed sometimes and and sometimes we just kind of turn to these coping skills that aren't so helpful and how do you how do you approach people about that the fact that maybe it is possible to work on these things um well for me personally I grew up in a home that had a cycle of silence. And let me tell you, that was probably one of the worst ones because it's just like, you're taught how to put your own self on a back burner. Your problems and everything that you have been through does not matter. And it's not that, it's not that it it didn't matter. It was just, nobody was capable of talking about it because that silence cycle was so strong that it was just like, we're not, we just don't talk about it. Like, we're just not gonna talk about it. And how we're gonna deal with it is gonna be completely unhealthy and destructive. 
and then that becomes the normal. So like when I speak to people, because you know what, what it is about these, these cycles is it's so painful to address. Like it is so painful to have to constantly relive it. But people, what, what I think blocks people is that they don't understand by releasing it, you, you end up okay. Like it, it, it seems so scary and it seems so violent and it's just like, it's unfamiliar territory. And it's likely because you were born into a cycle of you're not supposed to talk about it. And then you're now here you are as an adult trying to say things, or even I, I also work with teenagers, even teenagers can't say these things. And they're just like, I think it's just because maybe the cycle of silence um, hinders and also perpetuates our, our pain. So it's like, we don't, we don't know how to move past that point, which is worse because then you're just bottling everything up. And then eventually you explode and you end up in these like awful circumstances and situations. So I, what I do for people, I speak openly. That's what I started doing. And I realized that that is like one of the best things so far that has been really working. I come out with all of it. When I do my talks, I tell everybody that everything that I've been through and they just see somebody that's just like, holy crap, she's saying it. She's saying some of the things that I have been through and she's just talking about it. And she's talking about how she got over it, how she carries it why she has to carry it. So I think that's the, that's, that's the push that I, I kind of, I come with, with people is, you know, like it's possible, we can do this. And it's just a matter of helping them see that they can do it too. Because people, we live in a society where they have taught us that we have so many obstacles or we're not capable. We're not capable of thinking for ourselves. We're not capable of believing in ourselves. We're not, you know, like, it's just about showing people their capacities, their true capacities, not the ones that they were taught. It's about showing them the new ones. Yes, you are capable of being loved. Yes, you are, you are worthy and you are capable of changing no matter what that change is. Mm -hmm. that, that ability to feel capable, what do you think that families can do to actually, you know, actually reinforce that for, for younger people? Oh man, you know, that's a, that's good. I know healing, especially when I work with teenagers, a big problem for them is they go to these places for healing. Then they go back to their families yeah. that have nothing. They, they don't partake in the change. And that is so difficult to work with because it's like, you have this person who is ready, who is willing, sees the errors, sees the changes, but then it's like you, you, you pull them away from this and I don't want to say this, but you pull them from their family. You, you give them these skills and this awareness. And then you're just like, you got to go back. And then they go right back to what they were doing. The only way this, I, from what I understand, um, change has to happen as a unit. Like people, especially in a family, like it has to be everyone. It has to be everyone or the system is, it's like cogs in a system. If one is not functioning correctly, the rest are eventually going to stop as well. And that's just the way it goes. Mm -hmm. In that individual therapy that we often do at, at Kelly Mental Health, it's, it, we are sometimes stuck in all that we can do is just help the individual person. Sometimes you can have a family in for sure. You can do a little bit of mediation there and, and do some work, but yeah, it, it can be very difficult because sometimes I find families, uh, they have, the, they're defensive against each other even. And so without vulnerability, we can't all work towards positive change. We have to be able to sort of lay it out, but also not turn away from each other in doing so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's a really difficult thing to 
convey. Um, you almost have to get everybody alone, but then they they have to continue trusting you even when you're in another room with another family member. And not everybody is ready for change. Like that's the that's the difficult thing, and 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 we can't force everybody to be ready. Like no. that's that's the other thing too. You could have a whole family, and four out of five could be ready for it, and that fifth person is the one that's going to cause all the havoc and and bring the other four possibly back you know so it's it's I think I think working with individuals no matter what will always be a positive thing no matter what doesn't matter as long as you can still give them that awareness and those skills they whether they choose to keep moving forward with it like they'll grow they will grow and whether they decide like whatever path they decide to take what like I I'll I will admit I have cut off many family members due to like the me being capable of seeing the patterns and the cycles and being like okay so you're still doing the same thing and I'm really sorry and I absolutely love you but I have to move on and that's the way some of my some of my relationships have ended and they're still they're still in the past and they will continue to be there unless I see some actual concrete changes Mm -hmm. but that's about you setting healthy boundaries for yourself Right. So even just the way that you, you just portrayed that, right. It's, it's not you saying, okay, go to hell. I never want to see you again. It's, I can't accept this behavior. I, you know, it's not, I'm not inviting it into my life. Therefore I'm moving on. Yeah. It's accepting. It's, it's knowing your. it's literally adhering to that self-worth. Like that's, that's another, that's a big thing that I teach people. I teach people self-worth in a, for most people that are parents, I use the parent child analogy. You know how you love your child just completely like there's nothing your kid can do you know there's just some days you're just like oh i just love you so much look what you've done and you're just so proud and then there's other days where your kids do something and you you start to understand why some species of spiders eat their young and you know like you just but at the end of the day no matter what they did no matter what they did no matter what they said that's your baby you love them that, that unconditional love it's unrelentless it, it cannot change I always tell people that is the love that we have to give to ourselves like that exact same love has to be given to ourselves and that's when we learn those those levels of respect those levels those boundaries that we're supposed to place with others mm-hmm. I I was um, about an hour ago doing a consultation with uh, one of my one of my staff and I had the baby in my lap and for the entire hour and 10 minutes she's just booting 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 my arm and I'm like <laughs> you know, it's incredible sometimes to think about just the sheer amount of work and emotional labor it takes to get a human child to adulthood. And, and sometimes I, I will use that analogy with, with people as well that are struggling. It's like someone had to take the time every single day to make sure that you were fed, you were clothed, that you were comforted. Not everybody got all of that, but somehow you did survive. And uh, no one loses value over time. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you brought that up because um, actually in the recent couple couple years, um, I'm sure you've heard of like the balance of the medicine wheel that indigenous people speak of. Mm-hmm. So they speak about the uh, four planes of a person. So there's a physical self, a spiritual self, an emotional self, and a mental self. And the newest one that they're discussing about trying to apply and that it's very very just as important is your social because we're we we are we are we are all here because somebody took the time whether it wasn't the best of care but somebody took the time to clothe us teach us you know feed us and that's why we're also here regardless of what that may or may not have looked like 
Mm -hmm. And that's why, of course, the fear of rejection, um, you know, it just really strikes deep in our hearts that we really struggle with even just imagined abandonment that leaves such a big mark for a lot of people. And I noticed that the abandonment issues being really rampant within families. Um, I don't know if you've seen that as much. I'm, I'm sure you have, but just that real or imagined abandonment because somebody wasn't there when they should have been, or um, maybe somebody was threatened that like this was kind of an old old timey thing people tended to do more often was uh if they were angry they would be like well okay fine I'm leaving you or I'm I'm just I'm I had a, a friend whose mom used to say well you know they lived they lived out of Thunder Bay and they said well I'm gonna move to Thunder Bay and I'm leaving you here and the kids would go no just but I mean it's almost funny in retrospect but then you go how horrifying for a child yeah. to just think this is my, this is my caregiver. This is my lifeline and I'm being left. Yeah. That, that sounds like almost like psychological warfare. And it's funny because it's very not funny. Sorry. That was the worst word to use. Right. Very likely that the parent probably went through same cycles. You know what I mean? The things that they said were probably things they were told. So they were just like, Oh, this is how I was corrected and taught how to listen. I'm going to use this strategy. It's like um, people um, like today, like, like modern times. Um, I was having this discussion about how like my, my era spanking was okay. Hitting, yeah. was okay. you know, and I, I, me personally, I don't, I will never put a hand on my children. I don't know what that would teach them. Like I, I, that's just me personally. Like I, I see people make jokes sometimes like we should bring back hitting and I'm like, no, we should not. Like, <laughs> I don't really think that that's going to do anything for them. And um, like, I just, and the way I see it is it's literally like I, that happened to me because it happened to them and it happened to them. And it was just like, that was just the way they adjusted kids back in the day. And now I'm just like, no, uh, this is where, this is where it ends. This is where it stops. That's also though why it's so difficult to be the person that breaks those cycles, because you're the one that has to spend all this time going, wow, this thing that happened to me wasn't okay. And I have to unlearn this and I have to learn something new. Whereas your children that never experienced that fear and that pain, um, they, you know, they only know how you've treated them. So it's like this in-between phase. We talk about that with, uh, with the, you know, alcohol and drug addiction. Um, uh, like you said, psychological warfare, that emotionally um, driven language that people use against each other. Uh, just being that person that realizes like, I got to change that. There's so much work involved, but it's so worth it. And then your children go and look and see that behavior as just completely alien. Oh yeah. It's, um, I actually just had this conversation with a classmate recently because, um, there was a very open, um, dialogue going on with everyone where they were very inviting of me coming forward with a lot of my personal like stories. And I had one person just ask me like, you know, like, how do you break these? Like how, where, what, what happens? Like, where did it occur to you that you were going to be like, I'm going to end these cycles. And I didn't have an answer right away. Cause I was like, what? Yeah, really? Like how, where, <laughs> when did I do that? And, um, I, I just started, I, I think there was just a point in my life where I started to realize like that, that fear I grew up with, that fear of everything, the abandonment, the, the, mental and emotional unavailability of my parents. And I don't blame them. I, I should, I always say that to people, like anything I ever say about my upbringing, 
I, I have total forgiveness towards my parents. I have total understanding and awareness of the cycles that they were born into. And I get that this was just passed down to my generation. And it was up to someone like me to be like, no, we're going to end it here. I'm one of the ones that was made and I'm going to break this for the next one. Because when I looked at my kids and I seen that I was bringing these cycles in, like the ones of like silence and not being there mentally or emotionally. Um, and when I seen that these were possibly going to carry on to them, I, I didn't want that. I was just like, this is, this has got to stop because I, I, I want them to have a mom that they can come to. I want them to have a mom that is there when they're, when they're sad, when, and, you know, and with my, with my addictions, there was a possibility that that could have took me out and then they would have not had a mother at all, you know? So, and I know what that feels like because I have lost my mother. I lost my mother when I was 19. So I know what it feels like to be out in this world without that, without your mom. Like, it's just like, it's a very lonely feeling. And especially when, when the passing of your parent is kind of violent and awful, it makes it worse. So like, I can't imagine having succumbed to my addictions and my children having to live with that. And then them carrying on the cycle because they're just like, well, this is how she dealt with it. This is how we're going to deal with it. And it's like, no, we're going to break it. Mom will break it. Mommy will do it guys. <laughs> I did it. I'm, I'm so sorry about your mother. That's, that sounds absolutely awful. That just goes back to one of those injustices. That's another, that is a whole nother story. It's right whole, there. Yeah, <laughs> I, I hear you. I absolutely, um, but you're right. And then your children must have so much faith in you as a result of your being, you know, what you have done to change this. Oh my God, I did it. I did it. I have kids. My kids will come up to me and have open conversations like, Hey, I'm sad about this. Can I talk to you? And usually most of the time, all they're really doing is venting. Like they don't ever really need me to reply about anything. They just want to, they just want to get it out. And I'm like, okay, okay. And I just listen. And you know, they're, they're even allowed to call me out on things that I'm doing, you know, and I invite that there's, I was not capable of doing that in my upbringing. There was just like, these are your authoritative people. You do what they say and when they tell you to, and it was just like, okay, okay. You know, my kids are allowed to be like, Hey, I feel like you're, or you're doing this, or this is happening. And then I, I find, I listen to them because that's what they need. They need to be able to trust themselves to be able to say something. You know, and I have to be open to the fact that I'm still human. I'm going to mess up. And if it's them who calls me out, then, you know, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it and I'll make the changes. That's beautiful. That's just so, so wonderful because you're right. You know, I, and I kind of grew up the same way. No judgment to my parents, but it's very difficult to offer any criticism. So this is why I became a therapist <laughs> to be yeah. able to ask the right questions. So they'll figure it out. Um, but it's, but to be able to have your child so comfortable with you, not fearful of retribution and mm -hmm. for you to, for them to, you know, trust that you're going to be open-minded, right. You're mm -hmm. going to be able to you know, maybe take that information and digest it and decide whether or not they've got a point. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. I have grown with my kids in ways that I just like, I have never imagined was possible. I, I knew about parent, child parent relationships, but only the version that I grew up in. So for me to feel what I have with my kids, I'm just like, wow, I did it. Cause like they, I've cried with them. I've laughed with them to the point where like our bellies hurt. I've we, we were so close. And the funny thing is, is the, the pandemic, oh my God, that brought us so much more together 
like we we have like gratitude every night we have meditations together they can't go longer than like two minutes but still they're they're good they're doing good and they know how to manifest things like they're 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 amazing kids and I just like I cannot be more grateful for the fact that I just took that I took that brave leap of being like I'm gonna heal and I'm gonna break all this stuff and I'm going to give my kids better and now what I what secures me now is knowing that if they ever have kids they're gonna be even be even better than what I was and whatever possible small cycles that I still might have managed to have brought into their life they will likely break them for good and this mm -hmm. will be the new narrative for at least this lineage. That's wonderful. Is there ever a fear that because they, they, they or their children are gonna be so far removed from that history that they may not realize or they may not understand, you know, why you're so passionate about doing things this way? Like, I mean, cause the younger generations that are, you know, really out of that trauma, people, for example, that were born after the war, like they don't quite understand um, these things. And so any, any concerns sometimes about them not kind of understanding that connection of why we do these things? Um, no, I, not for me anyways. Um, like I said, I, I do have very open conversations. My mm -hmm. kids know that I had substance abuse issues, though they don't understand it on a level of like, what is, you know, like, what do you mean? Like, they don't understand that I used to like, be a heavy drinker. They don't know what that means. I just said I had a problem with something and I, I, try, I try to help them understand at a, at a level that they are at. So like to try to help a eight-year-old and a 13-year-old understand like what mom went through is going to be different between the two of them. But I have these open conversations because I feel like awareness is key to making sure the bad stuff doesn't sneak in a back door. You know, like if we don't, like my kids, unfortunately have two addict parents. So their likelihood of becoming addicts is just twice as high. Mm -hmm. So for me to have these conversations like, hey, I messed up my, my, my life and my world because of my choices with these substances and it just wreaked havoc, you know, for them to hear that and they're like, okay, yeah, this is what kind of, this is what really got her life messy. I don't, I don't want that because look how nice her life is now. And if that's, you know, so, and then when you're speaking about like a history my kids know what residential schools are, for instance, um, with the discovery, I don't even want to call it discovery, I've been calling it re the recovery of those Indigenous children. Um, I've been having very open conversations with my kids, like how, trying to help them understand because they were just like, well, how old were they? And I'm like, your age, your guys' ages, even younger, as young, young as your little cousins, your little baby cousins that are just learning how to, how to walk and talk. You know, so then it gave them perspective and they were like, what? And then I even, even painted them a picture. I'm like, you have to imagine that we're just sitting at home one day all nice. I painted a, a picture of kids getting picked up by the church. And I was like, we're just sitting here having a nice day. I knew they were coming, but I wasn't prepared for it anyway. And they just take you from me. And I'm screaming and you're screaming and we're all screaming. And it's just the most worst thing that could happen. And when you come back to me in the summers, you're not the same kid. And I'm not the same mom. And they taught you how to not love me anymore. You know, so there's like these very, to have that very open conversation is to help them understand. And it's, 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 um, it's more or less for, for the, I, it's important that they know the his, the true history, because the true history is just only now starting to become more 
common. Like it's it before, like I was just talking about textbooks in high school. I remember getting in trouble in grade 10 history when uh, I, I, it was supposed to, I was supposed to quote something in an exam or something. And it was like, uh, it was the part about the indigenous. So it was like the indigenous shared the land. And it was like, I started laughing and I'm like, I'm not writing that. <laughs> I'm not writing that. And she was like, you'll fail. And I'm like, fail me. I don't care. Like, and I remember my mom getting mad at me and she was like, why don't you just write it? And I'm like, that's not true. It's not true. Even I know that because my parents were so there was a silence I at least had a basic understanding of residential schools I didn't know how severe it was because of the, the cycle of silence in my home I didn't know what my parents went through I didn't know what all my aunts and uncles endured until I got a little bit older and then even university my first year of university was kind of my first exposure to like the like the laws against my people and I was like really like this was like it was like shell shocking because it was like wow like they these laws were literally designed to keep my people oppressed. So these are conversations that I have with my children and I would have with any child because I feel like the truth is important because like hiding it or denying it or masking it just kind of makes it, in my opinion, makes it worse. Like to ever sit there and not, like my son, for instance, is 13. He's gonna be going to high school next, next year. You know, he's about to be exposed to some things that you know most of us are exposed to in high school drugs alcohol partying all that glory stuff hmm. so i would rather him be prepared like nope my mom had some problems and i don't really want to fall into that kind of stuff like he's a good kid i i, I have total faith in him that he would be very open about conversations mm -hmm. because i've taught them to how i've taught them how to talk to me and i've taught them how to be like hey i got an issue i need to talk to you about so more awareness is kind of what I think is key. And I think it should start as young as possible. Absolutely. And you know, a lot of parents say they're fearful um, about just how much to share, how to share. Uh, a lot of parents, when we're run down, a lot of times we don't have the capacity at the ready. You know, our batteries are just so low. It's difficult to put the care and the time and the attention into how to say these things the right way, uh, even sharing grief, even crying around the kids. I, I, it's so many parents that are like, I, I just don't want to cry around the kids. And I try to tell them you should, because yeah. eventually the tears dry up and you show them, you can go through it, come out the other side. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> last year, last year. So in the pandemic last year, so it was, uh, lockdown and it was my first, like my mom's memorial, it would have been the 15th one. And it was the first time I was just like stuck in the house by myself. Usually I'm with my, my dad and my brother and we're all out doing ceremony or something. So this was the first time I had to actually sit here with my own thoughts. And I'm like, this is so uncomfortable, but like, it was nice. I needed it and it had to happen because I didn't actually realize how much I was avoiding. And I, and like my own personal feelings, like what I was burying really deep down low. So that particular day on that memorial, I like my daughter was just like we got I got snappy about something and it made her sad and I could tell but I just didn't even realize it was like my own emotion and I was like I was like oh my god what's wrong with you like me talking to myself and then I finally sat down with my daughter who was clearly and like you could see it on her face that she was upset that I snapped at her and I, I felt terrible and I was just like and she just looked at me and she's like what's wrong and I just burst out crying I was just, I was completely honest about my exact emotions. I was like, I miss my mommy. Like, I'm like, I know, I don't, I know you won't know what that feels like because you have me here right now. I was like, but 
uh, on this day 15 years ago something really awful happened and I was there for it and I was trying to explain it to you know her at the time who was um she would have been six yeah she would have been six years old so she got to see me cry and then so did my son my son ended up coming in the room so they both got to see this vulnerability and I think that was honestly probably more beneficial to my son because we're in a society where guys are being taught not to cry they're being told to man up and I'm like no we're not doing that we're not doing this that is like I think that is so awful that is like one of the worst things ever and I always feel for guys and I'm always like anytime I see a man standing up and saying he's like I'm sad I'm having troubles I'm doing this I'm like yes speak it up do what you gotta do you know so yeah no you know what cry in front of your kids do it have these real conversations tell your emotions because then they learn they're like it's okay to do that when you're an adult like my kids view me as the strongest person they know. They tell me this all the time. But now they know that even mommy has hard times. Even mommy's allowed to be sad. I'm allowed to be sad. I'm allowed to be mad. I'm allowed to have any type of emotion I want. And I'm allowed to express it. And that's what's important. And that's what's key is that we're showing children to, you know, be vulnerable and be okay with it. Let's break the stigma of all the stuff that is keeping us from healing. That's wonderful that you're able to do that with them, that you found that comfort in doing that with them. Uh, and of course, yes, keep spreading the word about this. It's important. You did touch on the, um, obviously the, the residential schools. And I, I say this all the time. I didn't even know they existed until grade 11 and somebody was doing an independent project. It wasn't part of the curriculum. I had no idea. And now I've worked with survivors for, you know, more than, more than a decade. And so it's kind of interesting because now with these discoveries, I'm kind of in a position where on one hand, I'm like, yeah, I thought everybody knew about that, but it's just because I've now been in it. But yet I was also in that situation where I had no idea. And I noticed because of just this rapid fire social media kind of society that we have these days that very quickly things spread, people get outraged, and then just as quickly almost become sort of apathetic, like, oh, well, it happened. Mm -hmm. Do you notice that that happening at all? Oh, yeah. I <laughs> So I have this thing where I'll ghost social media for like periods of time. And it is because of the negativity. Like I cannot believe what people are willing to say. Like, you know what I mean? Like towards their own personal like opinions, like, oh, I, I see the fighting and I, I also see the positives though. Don't get me wrong. I also mm -hmm. see like people ready for unity and standing together. And I think it's so beautiful. But what makes me want to leave social media right now is just like, people trying to justify things, you know, like, oh, it was diseases. And it's yeah. like, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm indigenous. I grew up. I heard the stories. I, I wasn't too sure about how severe they got. Like I heard a lot of awful things growing up and we heard like indigenous people. We agree. We, we all heard the stories we did and whether or not, and the only people who weren't hearing them was the rest of society, you know, mm -hmm. so the, us younger generations, we heard it, we knew it. Uh, we knew residential schools. I was lucky enough to have been told what they were at a very young age. And then I also kind of like, as I got older, I started to kind of like read into it because I was like, what is my heritage? Where do I come from? Like, why, why is my life like this? So then like, of course, that's what kind of sparked my own personal endeavors into finding out history of my people. And I'm like, why isn't this stuff in textbooks? 
Like, why aren't people being taught this? This was like, in my opinion, this was a pure genocide. So I'm like, why is this not in textbooks? Just like going back to my grade 10 history exam. Like, <laughs> you made me, you wanted me to lie on my exam for a mark. No, no. So yeah, it's, it's, oh man, like the, uh, I don't know, the narrative has to change. Like, and I don't, you know what, people are going to be people no matter what. So social media, I think is just always going to be like 50, 50. You're out, you're going to have the people that are willing to, to see and change. And then you're always going to have the people that just cannot budge from their, their perspectives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some people that will just kind of stick to what they think they know always, but it's, it's just because we, we become closed off, right? We become defensive. There's people that feel like, I think that with this stuff coming out, that it's almost threatening their way of life or threatening, I don't know, the society that they think they know. And, you know, it just gets confusing why, why people decide that this is the hill I'm going to die on that. No, it was tuberculosis. It wasn't abuse. It's like, no, no, it was, but how do we then all of us come together and try to do better? Mm-hmm. If you can't change what's happened, yes, no, we can't change what's that, but we can, we, it should be in the books. Yeah. Like it should be common knowledge that this happened. We can never, ever let people be dehumanized like this ever again. And yet it still happens every day that, that, you know, seeing people as certain sectors of, uh, or different groups, as opposed to who they are. Yeah. I, in all my talks, I always, I always have a saying, and it's my favorite saying. It was a, you know, I applied it to my own life. It's part of the time in my life where I realized all the changes I needed to make because I was capable of looking at my own life as a big picture. And I'm like, where's the problem? And I was like, oh, okay, you're just kind of repeating things here. So I have this saying that's, that goes, you'll forever repeat what you don't repair. So why do I say that is because you will literally keep doing the same shit. If you don't stop it somewhere, heal the old stuff so you can start a new cycle. So I feel that this saying of mine is obviously applicable to individuals, like to any one of us needing healing to, to look at our own selves and see like our own cycles and be like, okay, yeah, like I'm just, I'm just in a repetitive state of, you know, um, negative behaviors, you know, but this is also applicable to an entire nation because they're still denying all this stuff, even though it's like right there now, like you have the literal physical evidence of bodies now, and they still want to deny or not take accountability. So the thing about changing the narrative though, and I always say this to people because just as I broke cycles to be alleviated from, you know, like addictions and violence and stuff like that, people can break silence of bigotry they can if they were born and i don't blame necessarily blame people directly because you don't know if they were born into a home where it was just like we're gonna hate people of color we're gonna do this and we're gonna because i've seen homes like that people that were just like automatically against me their their parents like the person i was i had a friend their parents just hated me just for being brown they hadn't even met me and (laughs) I was just a dirty Indian. Like they they were like, why would you be friends with a dirty Indian? And of course my friend had my back and they were just like, she's cool. Like, she's so cool. And they're like, why, why, why do I have to hate her? <laughs> like, what's the problem? You know? So just as, and that person totally broke that cycle 
he, he's on our side you know he's like he's <laughs> an ally he's just like I don't even know like what his relationship is like now with his parents but like he's he's nothing he's nothing like them he's nothing like them so like just as we can break any we can break any cycle in our life anything we want anything that makes us I feel like anything that makes us like negative towards ourselves or others we got to break them like if we're gonna you know find unity it has to start somewhere and it's just like at the same time can humans change you know and and i know they can but at that vast amount i'm not i don't know i still have my i still have my uh hesitance Mm -hmm. about it that's that's why i try not to get too apathetic when i start looking at you know really like the long long history kind of (laughs) that this happened has happened so many times people turning on each other and Wars, you know, we just, we just want to live our lives. It's, let's just, everybody just get along for once. <laughs> Love each other. <laughs> just stop it. Just, yeah. yeah, it's it. You know, you talk about like the breaking of the cycles. And I think one of the things that stops people the most is that when you break a cycle, you do, you do risk a lot. You risk your social group. You risk your sense of belonging, uh, even, you know, as simple as something like I'm changing my diet and then people, ch- they kind of turn on you. They're like, well, what's wrong with our diet? <laughs> um, yeah. Like being vegan. And then everybody's sitting there trying to feed you meat. And it's just like, <laughs> yeah, you know, I can see, cause I I've seen people like, I, I I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. I make fun of vegans and so not, not like on a, you know, like a serious note. I just like to tease them. I am a wild game type of girl who, you know, enjoys hunting and stuff like that. So, you know, <laughs> my, my, just, I like to, you know, just tease about it, but I'm not going to say anything. Cause I get in trouble for this. <laughs> Go on. You know, the, the, the thing is though, the reason why it's so hard is because change is hard. Yeah. Like change is hard. Like, especially if it's something that's rooted from like childhood, like that's what, you know, that's your norm. So you're just like, you're, you're just it, to break those is a lot of work. You're actually doing in, in, um, in my course right now, we're actually talking about the stages of change, the model that they presented. So like the pre-contemplation, the contemplation, uh, preparation, action, and maintenance. So they were, they were talking about those things and, and what he highlighted in big, bold letters was change is hard. <laughs> so I'm like, uh-huh. yeah, it really is. Because like, if you think about like exactly changing your eating habits or uh, like when I was trying to break addictions, it's hard. It is so hard. There are so many factors involved, whether it's like uh, these are cycles that you learned or they're just like concrete habits. Like it's just change is hard. And Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, I don't downplay that to anybody. That is, it's so difficult, no matter what the, the change is, whether you're trying to become a positive person or you're trying to get rid of negatives, doesn't matter what it is. Change is difficult. It, it really is. And you know, one of the most minute examples sometimes I'll share with people is uh, try brushing your teeth with the wrong hand okay. <laughs> and, and think about how awkward it feels, how you have to really give everything so much extra thought, how it kind of makes you more tired than it should, because your, your mind is going now, that's just the most tiny, tiny example of what it's like to try to change something. You have to think about it, everything in minute detail. That is such a great, I like that. <laughs> I like that 
one now and that's that's a good one because you know i you know i'm a person of visuals and and painting pictures for people to help them understand exactly what i'm talking about that's a good one i like mm-hmm. that right so you know we're talking about relationships sometimes so um my my dad was a kind of you know shut down silent walk out the door and go for a drive but it would usually be pretty abrupt slam the door kind of person so i grew up thinking okay well that's kosher that's what we do right and and then I noticed with a partner how much that hurt him that Mm -hmm. you know it just I would fracture that relationship every time I did that and so sometimes it would take so much energy so much emotional labor to just calm myself and stay put but yeah yeah it's just kind of interesting to have to go through it each time and not go no don't do the automatic thing I got to stop and think this through right yeah, it's that impulse, that drive. It's like going back to the, uh, brushing your teeth. When you brush your teeth in the morning, do you actually have to think about it? No, you just do it. Like, it's so automatic. Like, I don't even think I actually have to think about, unless I'm using my left hand, yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. have to think about it at all. It's just get it done and then you're done. I don't even think I, like, there's no process involved mentally anyways. Like, so yeah, it's, uh, and then the going back to your situation, his cycle was you don't slam doors. So it's like, ah, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, it's a simple kind of things, but breaking the cycle, it kind of always goes back to that change is difficult. Um, One thing that I wanted to ask you about too, with again, things that are going on in our society right now and uh, the defensiveness, why do you think it is so hard for people to take responsibility for whatever, whatever role they happen to have played in anything that's happened? People tend to just shut down a lot of times. They get defensive rather than just being, oh, did, you know, am I responsible partially? What are your thoughts about that? Oh my God. You know what? Accountability is another difficult thing to do, but it's, it's actually probably the most relieving and releasing of anything you know to be able to be like hey I messed up I'm sorry how do we move on from this but not it's not everybody's ready for that because it's just uh again it's hard because it's like now you're you're going against like your own I guess it would be like your own feelings and your own opinions like no it wasn't me no, that wasn't, it was my problem, you know, and it's, it, it, it's almost just like our, it's like a self-defense in, in my opinion, to be like, you know, I will, to what degree a person was involved, they may or may not want to admit it. Like I know when I first started, and I will admit this, when I first started in recovery, I wasn't ready for apologies. I was blame, blame, blame. I was like, it was your fault for this. You did this. You did that. It was like pointing fingers at anybody I could, as long as it wasn't at myself, but growth and healing for me did not occur until I was just like, okay, so I did this (laughs) and I did that. Oh my God. And I did that as well. And it wasn't until that I started accepting what I did, that I was able to take accountability. And then I was also even capable. I was capable of taking it further from that into a form of forgiveness and not just to other people, but towards myself, you know, because we, we keep ourselves in a lot of cycles without even acknowledging that we're, we're doing it. Like, you know, when people say like, why don't you just leave? And it's like, <laughs> it kind of, in a way it kind of is that easy, but it's also not, you know what I mean? We, we, we do have a tendency to keep ours. We have a tendency to get complacent in a lot of situations. 
So like when it goes to like accountability, yeah, I think it, it's another one of those things that kind of hurts. Mm-hmm. Kind of hurts to be like, I'm the problem. Yeah. I have a problem, you know, and it, it goes back to like that pain, that pain factor, right. the same pain factor of having to address past traumas and stuff like that. I feel like I, they're kind of the same. Yeah. I think it's also like accountability, I think is a learned skill, right? Because if you grow up in a household where if you admit to wrongdoing, you're going to get beaten, you're never going to want to admit to anything, right? Because that same, even as a full-grown adult, that same fear center of the brain is going to be lighting up going, get out, get out, get out. <laughs> you didn't do anything, right? It's And so having those positive experiences that maybe... I mean, in your relationships where you can, you can address it and go, you know what? Yes, I did do this. And yes, emotionally it hurts, but I am not going to be thrown away. My, my value isn't lessened. I, my behavior can be changed like that. I think that's so important to have those experiences. Mm -hmm. No, you're absolutely right. Like I didn't even actually make that connection before when we're children you know, we're so, we're, we were so taught to, you know, those are your authoritative figures. And I was personally, I was abused by many authoritative figures. So it was like, you know, in, in all aspects, mental, emotional, sexual, physical. So for me, authoritative figures, they were scary. And then they kind of remain scary for a very long time. So, and then it's like, when like, I don't know how that transitions into adulthood. Like, I, I think maybe if I'm thinking correctly, it's, again, it's scary and it's painful. And it's like, no, I'm not allowed to admit these things. I'm not allowed to call you out. I'm not allowed to do anything, you know, because like you're, again, your childhood, it's what you know. It's what mm-hmm. you were taught. Yeah. It's how you were shaped. You know, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Shaped to be quiet, shaped to be silent, shaped to to just take it to the grave like and it's it's so gross yeah to be better at hiding things really than than admitting it yeah yeah hide and go seek champ apparently like (laughs) (laughs) well I I feel like we could sit and talk here all night so I'm gonna have to have you back again (laughs) once you're a little less busy um but this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for coming and talking to me and sharing and uh, just your story is incredible. And uh, I feel like you have so much to teach people and and can be so helpful to them with uh, just, I mean, your passion, you're just, you're inspiring me. (laughs) I I was, I, I had to do an intro for school and they were like, why are you here? And I'm like, you know what? I went and got my psych degree for me that was for me. That was, uh, I learned so much about myself and my, my, my past. And I was able to connect things to my future. And it just literally, it healed me. It was liberating and it healed me. And now this social work degree, this is for other people. Now I'm going to learn how to liberate other people. I already have the passion. I already have the drive. And so it's just like, now just give me the credentials. Give me the, the, give me, give me more skills. I need more skills. That's what I, that's what I need. Amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we'll, yeah, thank you. And we'll talk again soon. Okay. Thank you. Bye.